0: Hey, it's PNN. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. It is Sunday, January 24, somewhere thereabouts. Yeah, a bunch of stuff going on. Things are happening. Tonight on the show, we have Rick with a frontline healthcare worker from Tampa, a uh, um, uh, who has, I think if i'm understanding this correctly has been radicalized pretty much by the uh, process of uh, working in a covid ward so look for that at about eight o'clock janine Moloff has a fabulous piece about the need to prosecute marco rubio and she says um For the justice report, uh, there's a a dire necessity to prosecute Trump after Marco Rubio's statement to Fox uh, that impeachment is stupid. Uh, She's uh, she's rebutting that and uh, and uh, pushing towards uh, 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 arguing for prosecuting Trump and also, you know, some of these other guys. And I know that' there's some, there's some sympathy for that uh, in the progressive in, in progressive circles what i what I hear a lot of is um, uh, the uh, people who are in Congress who helped the um, folks get inside the Capitol and who were you know kind of behind the scenes directing things, people like Mo Brooks from Alabama that these guys need to be um Run out, run out of Congress, you know, because an it and, and insurrection is, is a no, no, you're not supposed to do it. You're just not. You're just that's not that's not what you're supposed to be doing. And there's rules. There's definitely rules to censure people, but there's also rules to remove people. So what has been on the table has not only been about. Impeaching Donald Trump again. And it's also been about going after these these members of Congress, and uh, you know, uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez has been and the uh, has kind of led this uh, this movement, if you want to call it that, this effort. That's a better word. Uh, she's been out in front of that effort, and I, when I hear her talk about it, I can't help but think about all of the grief that she got for her social media manager and some of her staffers when she first got into Congress and it was just mild stuff. And Nancy Pelosi crawled all the way up her ass about that. And I can imagine she's just a little bit chapped about, you know, seeing these guys just completely walk free, you know, just like, you know, participate in a freaking insurrection and like nothing happens. So, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I have not been a huge fan of impeachment the first time around. I didn't think it was the thing to do. I don't think they they went about it right. They should have gone about it with emoluments instead of this bizarre conspiracy theory about Ukraine. Uh, and, uh, you know, it reminds me of when I was in elementary school and for whatever reason in my music class at Skeen Elementary in Leesburg, Florida, our, our music teacher... Two years in a row had us watch um, the, uh, the musical that's about the boy who cried wolf. Twice in a row, you know? And I was like, ah, what are you guys trying to say or something, you know? <laughs> are you expecting us to, to be like that kid? Um, so I pretty much grew up feeling like crying wolf is a bad thing, you know? You, you, you only get a couple of bites at the apple. And, uh, you know, make them count. And um, they went on for three years with that Im- impeachment uh, uh, situation and it didn't count. Now, now I think they would really like to do something about him and, and make sure that he can't run for president again. Uh, and they're running into some opposition. So we'll see how that pans out. Uh, I have a piece I'm going to share with you here in a few minutes, like right before we went on the air, a story dropped from the Washington Post. Here it is. Uh, Sung Min Kim dropped this at like 530-something. Lawmakers in both parties lobbied the White House for a more targeted relief bill. Um, What that is, is that is Joe Biden's people in the White House calling up the washington post and saying hey i want you to to let everybody know that we're negotiating with the centrists and the problem solver caucus to means test not the two thousand dollar checks but the fourteen hundred dollar checks and they're going to make sure that those fourteen hundred dollar checks don't fall into the hands of somebody who might need it i suppose so you know We'll uh, we'll we'll see how that goes. Um, big big doings on the Twitter's right now. Um, hold on, hold on. It's going crazy on my desk. Big doings on Twitter uh, because there's this guy named Magnus something or another grew up in a in a hippie household and became a boogaloo boy or a boogaloo or whatever they call themselves the boogaloo guys and uh jimmy Dore had him on because he had seen a clip of this guy talking about how he's an anarchist and that they spent the summer uh uh, protecting the george floyd people from the actual white supremacists who were going after them. So there's this big um shall we say uh discourse around um around uh you know this this crops up from time to time and I've talked about it from time to time. There's a discourse around whether or not you should ally with uh whites with these right-wing people you know now this guy doesn't identify as right-wing he identifies as anarchist however he is also associated with the boogaloo guys and the boogaloo guys even though he says that the media has it all wrong and they aren't really insurrectionists they aren't about having a civil war or whatever he says that they're about like protection or whatever but, you know whatever that's fine um it's not my cup of tea you're never going to find me marching uh with you know a guy in a hawaiian shirt carrying an ar-15 no thank you um but that reminded me that earlier this week there was there was an arrest in central florida of a proud boys organizer Okay, and this Magnus guy is real keen on letting you know that the Proud Boys and the Boogaloo guys are two totally separate things. Okay, whatever. The Proud Boys are way nastier, supposedly. So there's this uh, Proud Boys organizer arrested in Central Florida uh, as an organizer of the U.S. Capitol. The Orlando Sentinel said riot. You know, they didn't say siege or any of that they they just called it a riot <laughs> okay uh, i don't know if that's ap style or what anyway so i so i looked this guy up you know like like his name was in the story i can't help myself you know i'm curious and uh, the guy is in iraq Afghanistan combat vet he was in combat for seven years he's also a former reporter for Alex Jones and he did that for I think it was like two and a half years who is now unemployed and actively seeking work as a driver even though he's got he's got a lot of skills but it, the work that he's looking for at least on LinkedIn is, is driver um, and I think you know, when I read that, you know, it's just what what went through my mind is that, you know, he doesn't want a big job. He wants he wants something kind of chill because he just spent 7 years in combat in Afghanistan and Iraq and uh, you know, I understand that. I understand not wanting to, you know, stretch yourself after going through some trauma. But anyway, um, this reminded me, this guy and his whole situation, you know, he's, uh, he's from Ormond Beach. He clearly is, he, he doesn't come from money. He's, uh, he was a non-commission uh, in, the, in the military. Didn't spend enough time in the military to come away with any kind of, you know, uh, stipend or pension after leaving it was only seven years even though it was all seven years in combat but this reminded me of this professor i had his name was joe corso and he is a political science professor taught at east tennessee state university where i went one of my favorite guys in the world and he taught he taught a lot of theory so uh theory and like urban studies things like that um you had to take his classes if you were majoring in poli sci uh, because you had to know about uh, modern and classical and contemporary um, political thought. So, so those were the main things that he taught. So I liked this guy a lot. And it was one of those classes where you sit in a circle, you know, all the tables are in a circle in a room and it's about discussion. You know, it's it's not about listening to someone lecture. It's about having a topic and being able to bounce it around the room and move it around, move the discourse around. And at one point, this professor put a book in my hand called "The End of Ideology" by Daniel Bell. This 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 uh, I think it came out in 1960. It had been written in the 50s, and and uh, he gave it to me with this sense of. This this is the key. This will really help you. You need this. Use the book, Luke. And uh and so I went and I read it and I was like <sighs> It was all about how um we had moved beyond the need for fascism and communism. Okay, the writer was very, very concerned about like socialist movements. And, and he, was, he was touting that in the 50s, they had moved beyond the need for any kind of, of fascism or communism because of, there was a chicken in every pot. People had jobs. People could afford houses. Yada, 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 yada. Yeah. So no more ideology is necessary seeing this guy from Ormond Beach with this history right here, you know, combat vet who worked for Alex Jones. Oh my God. And, uh, and I'm thinking this is a guy who early in his life had a very freaking tough job, uh, probably experienced some trauma and, uh, came into a proto fascist ideology, probably came into it in the military. Um Now why why didn't people become fascists in the military in the 50s? You know, I know plenty of old dudes who were in Korea and Vietnam and they weren't freaking fascists. They would get in and out of the military and not, you know, become freaking proud boys or brown shirts or whatever you want to call them. Uh that's something that's happening now. And I remember reading this book and I was just like, I, I can't relate to it because I was going to school on grants and loans, and I had three jobs and I sold plasma. That I I didn't there wasn't a chicken in my pot. Let's put it that way. And there wasn't a chicken in anybody's pot who was getting ready to graduate in like say 1989 or 1990 or 91 because we're graduating out into a um, poppy bush george poppy bush recession there weren't any freaking jobs uh it was it was bad it wasn't as bad as it is now though uh so bell's idea was that sensible people have moved beyond fascism and communism because technocracy has already solved the problems that lead the rise to either um and you know a subtext here is that in the eighties uh there was a lot of fifties uh callbacks uh Reagan and David Lynch both had big fifties uh you know things about them like, things were better in the fifties they were simpler you know people got along and this ideology thing I think is part of it you know because there's this idea that you know people weren't Didn't have big political ideas. I didn't need these ideologies because of the chicken in every pot. Um, But the thing is, despite the fact of all of that, you know, it just, it didn't apply to me. I didn't have the words then to understand it. I do now. Now I understand it. Our material conditions are completely different than they were in the 50s. And this guy, Daniel Bell, was actually really stretching to make this proclamation that, oh, we've moved beyond ideology. You know, he was he was getting a little bit out ahead of his skis there. Um, but, you know, going back to Joe Biggs, that's a guy who was arrested with the with the Proud Boys in Ormond Beach. It feels like to me um, that here we are in, in 2021 with both rich and poor folk fascism. It's on both sides. You know, these Trump supporters, they are commercial real estate brokers and they are combat veterans. It is both, you know, and and they get the guys who are combat veterans to go and do their freaking dirty work. That's the way it freaking works. That's the way it's always worked um and thank god we have competing ideologies now because i think that if there wasn't you know people on the other side saying look we have to do more for people we have to do we have to adopt more socialist policies if there wasn't a balance there then these guys would totally be running away with the show at this point um technocracy can't kill ideology because technocracy isn't designed for justice and equality. That's where it went wrong in the fifties. Yeah. So maybe there were a chicken in every pot. If you were white or dude or owned some property, right? If you were the right people, you got a chicken, you know, but there was so much racism and there was so much injustice that, that had to do with, with cultural issues that, you know half of us got left behind so they were just spinning this tale you know they were just you know whipping their own cream so to speak um and 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 also other forms of oppression were there was there was the, the vietnam war was getting ready to happen and we're just getting done occupying korea so uh it only felt like the individual ideology, and it only felt like the end of ideology, ideology for some people. Everyone else was fixin' to fight for civil rights. Everyone else was fixin' to fight all kinds of countercultural uh, uh, situations. Now, we have to figure out what we're gonna do with these Joe Biggs guys. We absolutely can't let this stuff fester but we have um now i don't have the answer to that i have questions relating to that and the questions that relate to that all have to do with you know what are these people's material conditions what are they Uh, being propagandized with in the military what the hell are we doing to people in the military you know and how are we treating people uh elsewhere with regard to equality and equity and justice because i believe if you're not working towards those goals you know if you're just doing the technocracy part, you're not fixing anything. Now that's the hope. That is the hope that we have for the Biden administration, right? We have we have hopes. I'm not gonna say it's an expectation. I'm just gonna say he's in office. This is what we need to have done. And he could do it or he could not do it. So uh let's have a let's have a quick look at a. Uh, What's going on with all of these budget talks right now? I'll be right back. in their mind that the amount that we've spent is somewhere in the neighborhood of 2.4 trillion because that's the number that was has been attached to the program I'm going to back this up then <laughs> restart it there you go okay how much do you think the united states has spent on covid or pandemic stimulus response now, I know a lot of people have in their mind that the amount that we've spent is somewhere in the neighborhood of $2.4 trillion, because that's the number that was, has been attached to the programs that included some stimulus money for people rather than businesses. But the fact of the matter is, we've spent well over $6 trillion in COVID relief. And this has been largely through the Federal Reserve. There's been more than $4 trillion through the Federal Reserve in cheap loans to corporations and, uh, you know, to, to make the stock market happy. So this afternoon, right before we came on air, an uh, article dropped in The Washington Post entitled, Lawmakers and Both Parties Lobby the White House for a More Targeted Relief Bill. Now, this effort is being led by the National Economic Council director, Brian Dees, okay, who called together a group of centrists, you know, because they're the ones who really make the decisions around here, called together a bunch of centrists, including Joe Manchin, Susan Collins of Maine, Mitt Romney of Utah, and the entire problem-solving caucus. That's, that's who they're talking to. And, and guess what they think? These guys who've already spent over $6 trillion now when it's time for people to actually get some money, they're saying, oh, it just seems like we're spending too much. We can't do that. And so they want to make these $1,400 checks, not the $2,000 that that we were promised. They want to make these $1,400 checks more narrowly targeted. So, you know, here comes the means testing, right? So it's going to be more narrowly targeted, apparently. And they're absolutely letting Republicans and Republican-like people. There's only one Democrat who's actually named in this article, and that's Joe Manchin. uh, They're letting them run the show, 100%. Now, David Sirota did a really good piece uh, earlier this week. This was a cover story of Newsweek, and it's Can Joe Biden succeed where Barack Obama failed? And of course, it starts out talking about how uh, Barack Obama came in with all of this bluster about hope and change and pretty much immediately, you know, rolled over and showed his belly to the Republicans. You know, he just did not have the stomach to, uh, to, have any kind of conflict with the republicans at all he gave them all this leeway gave them everything they wanted you know uh, people didn't get bailed out in the in the housing crisis and for all of his trouble you know he expected to make some friends on the republican side of the aisle for all that trouble they freaking hated him (laughs) He, he didn't get anything out of that deal at all And so what David Sirota is saying in this piece in Newsweek is that he's going to have to go big and he's got to have to go big in an FDR way. And that's not just a political calculation, although the political calculation is very freaking important. But he's got to go big because we've got to fix the stuff that is broken right now. We have a completely broken economy. We have people who have been out of work for going on a year. We have uh, an inability to go to school while the pandemic is still raging. And yet we we have, you know, Joe Biden saying, oh, I'm opening up schools again, all right? Vaccine cannot get distributed to people because we don't have a distribution uh, network for healthcare at all. You know? And, and so they, they've got all of this patchwork of, uh, of ways to give vaccine to people. And it's got to come in, in, in two shots. And those two shots have to be timed just right. So that the um, patient or so that the, the, the person gets the immunity conferred that, that you would want from a vaccine. And they're having trouble, even though they can get people on the first round, now they're having trouble getting people back for the second round. It's a nightmare. It is a complete nightmare. We covered this last week when I talked about how West Virginia, uh, there's West Virginia and I think South Dakota, it's one of the Dakotas. Uh, These two states did not sign on to the agreement to have CVS and Walgreens uh, do the distribution on the vaccine, and these are the only two states that are actually getting vaccine distributed Now, I should tell you something about you know wh- where we 're at in this country with regard to health care now, just as a refresher course here is here is what Joe Biden did during those obama years he 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 backed the bank bailout program uh, he pushed a stimulus bill that was way too small. Uh, he promised a change from uh, Bush administration to uh, who had tried to privatize Social Security, and went back in. Joe Biden was, you know, one of the he was the leader, the point person on the cat cat food commission, the the Simpson Bowls to uh, to cut Social Security through a number of different uh, mathematical formulas that all you know added up to less money for people. Um, they touted getting tough on Wall Street, but the administration refused to prosecute bank executives and refused to force financial institutions to accept mortgage losses. There was no cram down and effectively shielded George W. Bush and the administration from any investigation into the Iraq war and the lies and the torture regime. And and, you know, all of it was this, uh, you know, we need to look forward as opposed to looking backward. Now, past is prologue, we're going to see much of the same from Biden uh, reflecting back on the Trump administration. I don't think really that he has the stomach for any of this uh, in, in impeachment proceedings. I don't think that's on his agenda at all. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit with uh Kardec, I believe. Uh, so for the bottom line for Biden is he's got to really get in there and do some stuff really fast. And he's got to piss off some Republicans to do it. And he's got to piss off some centrists to do it. You know, but Mitt Romney, Susan Collins, uh, mansion they were not elected president they don't have the power to veto things but it looks to me like there are plenty of people in the white house who are inviting those people in pretty much to say hey you know what do you think you know, maybe maybe we put you guys front and center, you know, the guys who really don't want to do anything, who don't want to get money to people, who don't want to, uh, you know, leverage uh, the government of the most powerful country in the world, don't want to leverage it to actually help people. We need an excuse not to do that. That's why they bring in Joe Manchin. That's why they bring in Susan Collins. That's why they bring in Mitt Romney and the Problem Solver Caucus. Um, but now this is going to backfire on Joe Biden really bad, okay? Um, Biden almost certainly will not be able to make public investments, the big public investments that he has to do if he is conflict-averse with these centrists and these Republicans. And Mark Pocan, Pocan you know, the former uh Uh, What was it? Deputy chair of the uh, he was the former co-chair of the Congressional Progressive Caucus. He uh, he's quoted in this Sirota piece. He says, quote, we've got to pass the infrastructure package. We've got to do two thousand dollar checks. We've got to do a whole bunch of things with a 50 50 Senate and a pretty slight margin in the House. Okay, he's he's the uh, representative, one of the representatives from Wisconsin. He continues, I hope we don't do what we did when Barack Obama first got elected and try to have a kumbaya and a little too much with everybody and not get things done in that period of time that we had. We really have to act and use the very tight margins we have swiftly in order to get things done. Okay, so Sorota says that the good news is that... Uh, um, Progressives are better positioned for this fight than they have been in years. The corporate wing of the Democratic Party remains powerful by virtue of its ties to big money. But polls show it has lost the argument in the contest of ideas. Now, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because you would think after the election after the democrats you know went hammer and tongs after progressives and saying it's your medicare for all socialism and it's your defund the police uh, uh police reform stuff that that made us lose well it turns out it actually turns out according to polling that uh that uh, the progressives won the contest of ideas what they're tired of is corrupt Uh, members of Congress who don't do anything. That's what they're tired of. We're getting ready to see whether or not the people who are in Congress right now are the same old, same old, or if they're going to do something different this time. If it's the same old, same old, you can bet your bippy that Biden loses the House and the Senate. Definitely the House and very likely the Senate. If they don't go big and make it happen, people are going to revolt. They will revolt in in the ballot box at the very least. Already, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other members of the squad persuaded leaders, Democratic leaders, to reform budget rules to make it easier to pass landmark initiatives. They're talking about reconciliation here and they're talking about some some, uh, you know, ways to get things through Congress. But remember, there isn't even a power sharing agreement in the Senate yet. They don't even know how they're going to calendar votes at this point. All right. So the House might be kind of sort of getting their stuff together. At least they know how 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 they're going to schedule votes. They they know what's what's going to be on the calendar. The Senate doesn't. They're still fighting over that. And McConnell, what McConnell is saying is that uh, he's not even going to talk to them uh, to do a power sharing agreement if they don't promise to keep the filibuster off off of the agenda so he wants to make sure that that uh that there's a filibuster that it that it takes 60 members to pass anything and uh um there's no way to get anything done if that's the case and as you all know uh Senator Bernie Sanders from Vermont will chair the powerful Senate Budget Committee. He will be able to set federal spending priorities and also be in a position to use the arcane process known as reconciliation to circumvent the Senate filibuster for big ticket items. This is stuff that's related to the budget. And, you know, remember, this is what was used last year to run up that six trillion dollars, you know. That that was floated out to corporations into big business. That's that's how all of this stuff happened was was through reconciliation. So using reconciliation to actually get some relief to people. Well, that would just be. uh Fair. That it just be the way the freaking cookie crumbles here. You know. That shouldn't be a black swan event. That shouldn't be something out of the ordinary. For God's sakes, the government of the United States of America needs to, once in a damn while, do something good for people. That's not asking too much. The Trump administration used reconciliation to pass his giant tax cut for the wealthy and weaponized... Uh, the the rules process to scrap 14 obama regulations sanders understands the imperative of using every tool possible to make change and he has said quote we have to act with a boldness that we have not seen in this country since fdr he told us to nbc news and he continues if we do not i suspect that in two years we will not be in the majority now Biden campaigned for the presidency, promising to restore a pre crisis kind of normality um but that's not enough to pull us back from the abyss. What we're facing right now is as big, at least as big as the great depression like 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 if you had a great depression and you had a pandemic and any other number of uh problems worldwide having to do with imperialism and war because you get it just all of that just thrown on the playing board okay something has to be done now when the republicans are uh are in power and even when they aren't in power they find a way with as little as nine representatives known as the Freedom Caucus, they find a way to get exactly what they want. They find a way to, when they're in the minority, to gum up the works. And when they're in the majority, they find a way to throw money at their donors. Now, all of the people saying that the squad and the Progressive Caucus don't have any power and blah, 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 and all of this, they don't have any power because they're not taking it. Power isn't something that is just offered to you and you go, oh, wow, thanks for that. I'll think of something to do with it. You know, it could come in handy. That's not how power works. If you want power in the United States government, in the House of Representatives or in the Senate, you got to go take it. That's the way you do it. And when we come back, we're going to talk with Karthik Krishnar a little bit about the Freedom Caucus and how all of that stuff works, and also a little bit about the uh, um, what's happening in the Senate and why they aren't going to be able to put anything on the calendar or do any votes, and that's going to be really interesting. So hold on, we'll be right back. <laughs> And we should be back with Karthik Krishnar. Hey, Karthik, are you there?
1: I am here. How are you?
0: I am really good. Uh, you know what? After a week of... I actually felt like crap most of the week. And I think I'm coming out of it. So, yay. It's a good Sunday.
1: I- yeah, and it's... Uh, I, I will say I, I was sick inauguration day also, like you. But um, I, uh, I didn't realize how I would feel after biden was inaugurated right i didn't realize i would feel like this huge burden had been lifted i I mean people say this stuff before it happens but not having to wake up every morning and worry about what trump is doing and what he's saying and what uh what might happen to the country actually is a pretty big relief but unfortunately we still have uh the leading insurrectionists and, and, and trump enablers Making a lot of noise. I, I, in fact, making as much noise as they've ever made
0: in the last few days. Yeah, it, ar- arguably, things got a lot uglier in the last few days than they had under under Trump. I mean, Trump, in a way, was a, a bit lazy. You know, he did his he did his executive orders in the beginning, and pretty much skated through all of this COVID stuff. We lost a lot of very critical uh time in the beginning and and over the summer and so now 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 it's gone and uh and i saw somebody say something today what was it that that you know he's gone now i mean along the same lines of what you uh, what you're saying he's gone now and uh we can start thinking about other things we can start doing other things and so that's why i wanted to have you on because uh the things that need to happen are uh have a lot to do with um you know we need some perspective from from history so Uh, last night there was a debate or maybe you might call it a discussion it was uh, quite contentious uh, with the bad faith podcasters brianna joy gray and will menacher had sam cedar on the show uh, to hash out their differences on force the vote and one of the refrains that Sam Cedar kept coming back to, you know, was the "I'm the stern dad here." You know, he's like Gen X, and they're like, uh, you know, much younger Millennial types. And uh, he kept coming back to what are what are eight or nine people in 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 the house going to do? I mean, there is absolutely no power in eight or nine people. And you know, I thought. When he said that, and, and and this always comes to mind, is that the 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 Freedom Caucus, you know, uh, do you guys not pay any attention to what the conservatives do? The Freedom Caucus started with nine people. One of them was Ron DeSantis, and is it Ron or John? Anyway, DeSantis, our our, DeSantis. Yeah. Yeah, our yeah, our our lovely governor, governor. <laughs> started with him. Uh, and uh mo Brooks from uh, from Alabama just, just just a lot of nasty nasty types uh started out with nine Jim Jordan was one uh it started in, in 2015 Mulvaney
1: was one I was the one Mulvaney was the guy I remember um, when it started now I guess Jim Jordan is uh, is maybe the most vocal but I remember Mulvaney being. The, really, the one that really irritated me because he was more bookish and more kind of, um, he seemed more refined than the others. Mm-hmm. So to me, he was very, very dangerous. And then he did go on to serve in the Trump administration. As did Mark Meadows, who I think was one of the founders, who was... Who uh, who doesn't come across as well as Mulvaney? But I mean, it was a pretty distinguished group.
0: At Amash. Uh, a,
1: a, a, a small group, but a distinguished group on the right.
0: Yeah, and uh, Justin Amash, yeah. who doesn't Amash. exactly yeah, fit the—he uh, doesn't exactly fit the the mold of a, um, of a of a Desantis. He's he's a little bit more just libertarian right. rather than a crazy person. Uh, but anyway, so. Th- There was a lot that they did, and they uh, want what they would consider to be a big win was uh, mucking up the ACA or the AHCA, the um, American Healthcare Act of twenty seventeen. You know, like this grew out of the Tea Party movement, and they were able to. Uh, put a bunch of amendments on it and you know, they got their way on just a ton of stuff. So what, what in your experience, what in history have there been any other times where small groups in the house of representatives or in the Senate, small groups of lawmakers come together to affect change? Yeah, it 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 happened
1: fairly regularly. Now, uh, in Cedar's defense, to a certain extent, I would say I think he's taken the stick, which I don't totally disagree with. You and I may disagree with it, but I think in a lot of cases, uh, the, the, the uh, far left progressives are not very schooled or, or, or understanding in the ways that Congress works and, and the way Washington works, and they expect they expect big things, and they're they're not always realistic about what can happen in the Congress, which I think is a point he's tried to make before. Um, and one of the reasons why I don't think – I think a lot of progressives didn't understand what AOC and the squad were doing voting for Pelosi. That having been said, in this case, he's wrong, Uh, because there is no question we've had uh, small groups, small caucuses uh, come together. I I think first off, 1981, when the Democrats were still in the majority in the House but had lost – and I think I've talked about this on the show before – had lost 36 seats or something. uh, Well, we lost, I want to say, 12 – or 14 Senate seats. that year was horrible. 1980 was a horrible year for Democrats. But the Democrats are still in the majority in this House. Tip O'Neill is still the Speaker. And what ended up happening is you had a small informal group of 10 or 15 conservative Democrats from the South, uh, led by the likes of Sonny Montgomery from Mississippi, uh, Charlie Stenholm from Texas, uh, and uh, and Phil Graham from Texas, who would eventually switch parties. Uh, That's, undercut you know they, they were working uh, against their caucus and against uh their their speaker in terms of budget and spending priorities and the bush excuse me bush tax that's how come later the Reagan tax tax and eventually Phil Graham who had a seat on the budget committee um was found out by Tip O'Neill to have been um colluding with the White House talking huh. to the White House, uh, et cetera. So what ends up happening is um, they their caucus, uh, their informal caucus, and they were called the Bold weevils, right, because they were from a lot of cotton-picking states uh, and a lot of rural districts, although Phil Graham was a uh, economics professor at Texas A&M, so he was, he was uh, uh, certainly not this kind of uh, real populist. But they, were, they ended up undermining uh, Speaker O'Neill and, and Jim Jones, who was the chair of the, the budget committee and the Reagan budget and tax cuts went through a Democratic House because of this group, which was only 10 or 15 originally. Now, when it came to a vote, there were about 40. But you could say the same thing. If, if you do a force to vote and you say there are nine Democrats, Jamal Bowman, AOC, uh, to leave, and you know, a handful of others that are vocal about it, that nine becomes 40 or 45 or 50 when you put something on the floor, which is the same same thing as the bowl evils. Um, I think eventually 35 or 40 Democrats voted with the Republicans and against their leadership of, in allowing uh, the Republicans to substitute their own budget and, and allow that to pass. Another example when I worked in Congress was the Blue Dogs, who were some of the actually Stenholm home was still around, and actually, I, I had a pretty good relationship with him. I actually, he's the only member of Congress when I when I was a, a, a staffer in Congress that actually let me sit in his office for an hour and pick his brain. Uh, Charlie Stenholm home from Texas, who was a conservative Democrat, uh, who by the way never switched parties. Um, and by that time, he was beginning to vote with with of the leadership a little more because he he really disliked Newt Gingrich. Um, but um, the uh, there was this group. 10 or 15, and it grew to about 25 eventually, of the Southern Democrats who would hold their votes from the leadership, um, from Bonnier and Depart, who were our leaders. Uh, we were in the minority, but the, the the margin wasn't that great. It was a little bigger than the Republican majority. they was usually, depending on the specific Congress, somewhere between, they would have somewhere between 225 and 235 seats. And at the time, the Republicans still had a number of moderates. Um, House members. This, they, all you need to do is look up the list of former members of Congress that George Joe Biden in 2020. Former Republican members of Congress. Most of those people were still in the House in the, in the late 1990s, and were not. Um, they were not necessarily party-line Republicans. So there was this ability of like 10 or 15 Democrats to craft this this alliance with 10 or 15 Republicans, and it happened a fair amount. It happened. Uh, uh, more on environmental issues and on, uh, um, okay, so what I should say, is, it happened on environmental issues where those those liberal Republicans would break off and join with the Democrats and scuttle attempts to uh, to, to, to uh, underfund the EPA and and, uh, and 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 underfund the Clean Water Act and stuff like that. And then the flip side, it's what happened where, the, where these conservative Democrats would break off and side with the Republicans on um, some social issues. Uh, they generally, though, so by the late '90s, this is an interesting aspect of the Blue Dogs. By the late '90s, the Blue Dogs, a lot of them, their their spending priorities began to fall in line with other Democrats, which is what's so different about now, where you have these conservative Democrats again reemerging, where they're they're more uh, they're more conservative on fiscal issues. Because even by the late '90s, when I was working in Congress, a lot of the um, a lot of the Southern Democrats that were left from rural districts had uh, fallen in line on economic issues. And actually the last blue dog that was in the Congress when I when I worked there just got defeated in this election, Colin Peterson, um, to, uh, from Minnesota. So it's happened. And then the Freedom Caucus, you mentioned, it was nine members. And let's, 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 let's be clear about this. After the 2014 election, when Republicans won the Senate, the Senate had been in uh, – this just seems to be forgotten a lot about the Obama years, Brooke um, the, the House flipped in t- 2010, but the Democrats continued to control the Senate until 2014. In 14, the Senate flipped, and the House margin majority grew much larger for the Democrats, uh, for the Republicans, to where it took two two cycles of the Democrats winning a lot of seats to win um, the uh, win the House back. Because the Democrats did make gains in 16, even though Trump was elected, in both House and Senate, made gains, and then in 18, obviously won the House back. Nine members in early 2015, to try and set the course now that the Republicans have a majority and they are uh, they are planning for a post-Obama world where they have a Republican president. And think about this, by the middle of 2015, this group had orchestrated a coup within the Republican conference to oust John Dayton of the Speaker who to them uh, is right. too friendly with the president. And then Kevin McCarthy, who's the current minority leader now, but we'll get to, you know, we'll get to why he's, he, he's, he's in good stead again now. McCarthy decides he's going to be speaker. And there were some salacious, he's going to step up and replace Boehner. That's a logical thing. He's a majority leader. Boehner is the speaker. Boehner is, be, is being uh, ousted, um, and I think uh, President Obama arranged for Boehner to meet with the Pope, right? Boehner's a very devout Catholic, and I think once he had had that meeting with the Pope, he was done, right? You know, he had closures. Like, okay, these guys are—these these, uh, these, uh, radicals are going to overthrow me. I'll just step away. Um, McCarthy had some salacious rumors about his personal life. But more importantly, he didn't pass the Freedom Caucus, the nine-member litmus test. So then what happens? They say the only guy will accept is Paul Ryan, who is Mr. Conservative, right? I mean, it's funny because <laughs> Paul Ryan now is considered a rhino by all these people. But in 2015, he's the only bona fide conservative. In fact, I know people who are conservatives who in 2012 were on the fence about Romney. Thought they might vote for the Libertarian candidate. And then Ryan's put on the ticket and they're like, OK, we're, we're, we're back with the Republican Party. So Paul Ryan had this reputation and I was working in Congress when he first got elected, so, and he was in his 20s, and right away he was, he was plucked for stardom. Um, we all thought he was going to be president someday, which very easily could have happened, right? He was on, a, he was on the national ticket, he ended up being Speaker of the House. Um, so they effectively said, Paul Ryan, who is the Budget Committee chair, he's the only guy we'll accept, and he becomes the Speaker of the House. Now later, Ryan feuds with, with Trump, and, and, and he's ousted, right? And McCarthy re-emerges. But this is what's so important. Also, nine members in 2015. Right now, in 2021, McCarthy is so scared of what those nine members created and what those nine mm-hmm. members did to him in 2015. He is sucking up to them on a daily basis, mm-hmm. and they control the Republican Party now, or at least the, the congressional wing of the Republican Party. That's, so nine members became to whatever they have now, two thirteen, basically.
0: That's how you get power, and they. They didn't yeah. wait for someone to hand it to them. They went out and they got it. Now there's a there, there's this problem solvers caucus, which is basically no labels. You, you know no no labels is the organization that spent more than a million dollars to try to to successfully unseat uh, uh, Alan Grayson, and the people on the problem solver caucus actually include uh, Fred Upton from. Michigan who Joe Biden campaigned for now Joe now Fred Upton is a, a Republican who is very anti abortion and he, yeah. he edged out the pro-choice Democrat by four points. It was pretty close. This was in, in 2018. And this was another one of these no la- where no labels went in and spent a ton of money. Another was Dan Lipinski of Illinois. No labels got involved in that. And so when you look up the Problem Solvers Caucus, you see no labels because they are heavily involved. Now. Uh, Darren Soto is is problem solver. So is Stephanie Murphy from from Florida. And in this article that I shared that w- uh, was published on the Washington Post just moments before we came on, lawmakers in both parties lobby the White House for a more targeted relief bill. And it says that uh, Brian Dees is uh, is working with key centrists, and that includes the problem solver. Co- uh, caucus including uh non-problem solvers uh uh mitt romney susan collins and joe manchin not good news for people who need survival yeah. checks
1: no and, and it's pretty clear that they don't have the votes right i mean uh, i already saw on the sunday morning programs with warning uh, republicans saying biden's proposal is too much money we, we, we now suddenly they're concerned about the national debt, right? These people uh, mm-hmm. who weren't concerned about it two weeks ago, by the way, or <laughs> three weeks ago. Uh, in terms of Fred Upton, he's an interesting case because when I worked in Washington, he was a moderate. He was very, uh, he was very to the left on like environmental issues. He was to the left on, uh, he was not on abortion, but he was, uh, he was pretty good on guns. He voted for some gun control bills, which is why I think he. he uh, He's friendly with Biden. Actually, that is probably why, because those were Biden's skills in the Senate. Um, And then when Bush became president in 2000, he took, he veered hard right to the point where when Obama was president, he was one of the leading obstructionists in the sense that he had been in Congress so long, he knew the rules and dilatory tactics for those first two years, from uh, uh, 08 to, to 10. Now, I think some of these guys are trying to be... You know, they're trying to, to differentiate themselves from from the Freedom Caucus, but it's it, it, it's impossible to do so unless you are uh, unless you are willing to uh, vote for some of these uh, proposals coming from the uh, Biden administration or vote for impeachment, which only ten of them did, right? I, I maybe Upton was one of them, but um, I know Kinsinger obviously would have been one of them. So that's uh, and obviously, Liz Cheney, we know about it. And by the way, speaking of Liz Cheney, it looks like she's, she's, she might be done in Republican leadership. This is what happens when you cross the Freedom Caucus, um, which again shows how you acquire power. But yeah, the uh, the question of the relief bill um, can't be solved until the situation in the Senate in terms of the rules and uh, calendar and power sharing is worked out. And, and unfortunately, uh, the the bottom line is this. Somehow, while Biden was getting elected president and winning nationally by close to five points, the Democrats were losing seats in the House. And uh, I tweeted about this earlier in the week. I know you retweeted my tweet. It is unprecedented in modern history for a party that wins the popular vote for president. I mean, that includes some popular vote margins that were uh, significantly smaller than Biden's um, margin this year to lose seats in the House and, and to lose the number of seats in the House. That um, that uh, the Democrats lost. Now the only even quasi similar race uh, year was ninety two. Ninety two was a year where one Bill Clinton only got a plurality of the vote. Right, he was elected, but he was elected mm-hmm. with forty three percent of the vote. So you can assume some Perot voters voted Republican for Congress. Two, it was also a redistricting year. That was a year that the that the Bush Justice Department, George H. W. Bush uh, Justice Department, led by Bill Barr. Pushed this interpretation of the voting rights act, which benefited African Americans. But what it did is and we can, you and I can talk about this forever because we're both students of, of what happened in the South in the eighties and nineties politically, but um, just, you know, drew a lot of African Americans out of uh, districts represented by white Democrats. So where then those white Democrats were defeated in 92 or 94, a lot of them in 92, uh, the rest of them, 94, 96, Uh, by 2000, many of them were gone. So, um, that's why that election was that way. So the ninety, so the 2020 election, I gotta re- re- stress this was unprecedented for the drop off from the candidate who, who won the popular vote for their party in House of Representative elections, which means there were a lot of people who voted for Joe Biden for president but didn't want Nancy Pelosi to be speaker which now has left the Democrats with a razor thin majority where they can't do anything. They actually can't do anything for Biden because they lose two or three votes. That's it. It's over.
0: Wow. Well, see, and, and the, the way that, the way that power works is you don't sit around and wait for someone to hand it to you, you know, Uh, you you've got to go out there and and make your own opportunities and you know I think a lot of the frustration with the squad is it's not hatred it's not like people are like oh we don't like you anymore it's look we're on your side uh we're giving you political cover so you know you've got to mount a defense against you know these the 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 no labels people the problem caucus problem caucus haha the problem solvers caucus, <laughs> crocus crocus <laughs> i'm just malaproping all over the place uh it, 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 let me tell you this if they don't go and and find a way to defang these people these people are going to find a way to get them out of office. You know, this isn't a, a you know, like some kind of a tea party, you, you know, like, like a, a formal dinner where everyone is oh, nice I to are. each other. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Congress is, is a blood sport. You've got to get in there and you got to fight.
1: Right. Which is always, we Nancy Pelosi uh, survived this long and emerged. And, and I think, the thing that, that the Republicans learned when they were in the minority, um, there was a, this is why you Gingrich was so successful, right? The Republicans, for years, had just accepted minority status was their you know, talking point, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and whether that's true or not. But that was the way Gingrich and his band, and, and the same thing. So Gingrich's band was originally a handful of members that would that would give these incendiary speeches in what we, we, we call special order speeches at the end of the day. Um, and actually, I'm so out of the, the House of Reps scene. I know. I think they may have done away with special orders or limited. But back in the day, what happened is C-SPAN starts broadcasting the House, and um, and no, no, no one in the Republican Party, other than Gingrich and and, and a couple of these other band of people he was aligned with, Bob Walker from Pennsylvania was one of them. Um, uh, gosh, the guy from Illinois whose name is escaping me was one of them. Um, and so they had a, they had a couple of uh, members who then realized, oh, we're on television. We can speak directly to the American people. So we can get down the floor of the house and we'll be on C-SPAN. It might be eight or nine in the evening when when, when business is done, but we can just talk to the American people directly unfiltered. There's no Twitter. There's no Internet in those days um, as unfiltered as you can attacking Tip O'Neill. And attacking Jim Wright and attacking the Democratic majority in Congress, um, creating all these scandals, right? Um, and then their, their big event was an election for Congress in Indiana. Democrats probably stole, right? They seeded the member. There were two disputed counts that came from Indiana. The Democrats being in the majority seated the, the Democrats. Um, and then from there on, it was Congress was a blood sport. They made everything bloody, and eventually they flipped the house. Um, And quite frankly, the Democrats have never recovered from that because even when the Democrats have recaptured the House of Representatives in in small periods of time, 2006 and then in 2018, um, they've lost the majority quickly. Or in the case of 2018, uh, didn't lose the majority in 2020, but, you know, have this what we're talking about, this this 19th majority where it's unworkable. And like I've said a couple of times on Twitter the last few days, in a parliamentary system at this point with a 50-50 Senate, where you have a senator in Joe Manchin in your, in, in in the in what is supposed to be a majority party that's obstinate about a lot of these things, starting with the relief checks and, 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 and Biden's efforts to uh, to kickstart that. Um, and then you have a Congress where there's a nine-seat majority of the House. You would dissolve the parliament and you would call a new election. And I, I'm pretty confident after the insurrection that there was a new election called the Democrats would pick up more seats. Even if it's only five or six more House seats, that would be enough. And even if it were only one more senator, I right? That would be enough. But unfortunately, we're stuck in this gridlock and uh, the squad is going to have to be a little nasty because they're just not going to get anything done. I mean, let alone progressive priorities. I don't even think like the, the centrist neoliberal priorities um, of other Democrats is going to get done. What is effectively going to happen is these people are going to obstruct for two years um, and, uh, and and make sure if anything passes, it's very conservative. Mm-hmm. Not even a neoliberal thing. And, and then they're going to they're going to flip the House in 2022 uh, and they might flip the Senate, right? The Senate. We know there are not many um, Republicans in tough seats that they have to defend. I mean, I guess Pennsylvania is open. They're going to have to defend that. seat. but The Democrats are going to have to defend Georgia and Arizona, the two special elections right off the bat that they want uh, with, with, with uh with Senator Kelly and, and Senator Warnock, those two seats are going to have to be defended in, in 2022. In addition to uh, um, the other seats that were elected in 16, uh, Maggie Hassan in New Hampshire, that could be a, a very mm-hmm. tough, uh, tough election. Because what happened in New Hampshire this year was Joe Biden won New Hampshire by seven points, which was better than their point 0.2 or whatever Hillary wanted by. Uh, but then New Hampshire was one of these states where there was a huge drop off. Biden wins the state, he wins it by... We thought it might be a, a, a close state. Remember, he ends up winning it by seven points. Mm-hmm. Uh, Minnesota was similar. But then out of ballot, there was all kinds of drop-offs to so the point where the Democrats got their clocks clean in the legislative races in New Hampshire. Um, so Maggie Hassan seats up in 2022. I think that that's maybe a slight advantage to her. Maybe it's a toss-up. So the Democrats are in trouble unless unless they're able to... To, to, to make some sort of agreement or do something to, to gain control of this thing in the next couple of weeks, and as Senator Sanders talked about this morning on the Sunday programs, um, here's another thing, Brooke, just off a little bit off topic, but um, but kind of on topic. Since the insurrection, Bernie Sanders and AOC have become more mainstream political figures. Uh-huh. Um, it's very odd to me. But these uh, Sunday shows that saw Sanders as a pariah, we were sandbagging him four years ago, sandbagged him again this year, uh, were, you know, marginalizing LRC. Now see them both as very respectable figures, because in the case of Sanders, he was a guy who had very publicly said, look, all along, there was a possibility if, if, if you indulge Trump too much that it could come to this sort of militaristic um, coup-like behavior, which – Quite frankly, I thought he was exaggerating at (laughs) the time. I mean, I was kind of amused saying, Yeah, Bernie, we we all hate Trump, but come on. It's never going to come to that. Well, he was right. And the media knows he was right. So now suddenly um, they're booking him on all these shows. And then in the case of AOC, I think AOC's um, comments about Cruz and Holly and her um, aggression on that issue fits where the media themselves actually are. And the media are, are annoyed that the Democrats aren't as, uh, as stringent, as, a- as strong as AOC is on that. Um, and on the Lindsey Graham issue with, with, with his, uh, his call to, uh, to Raffensperger in Georgia. So this is a little a, a bit of a window, an opening for progressives in that AOC and Sanders have both become very mainstream with the media now. Um, there's a little bit of a love fest going on with both of them. So back to what Sanders right. said earlier today. Sanders, Sanders is talking a lot about the reconciliation process and taking the priorities that the president, that uh, President Biden sent to him as budget chair and bringing them through the reconciliation process. The Republicans are going to fight like hell on this. But truthfully, I think Bernie's on to something because that might be the only way to get anything done.
0: Well, we're up because against.
1: Otherwise, they're going to obstruct everything.
0: We're. We're up against a kind of fascism, the same kind, a very similar kind that FDR was. And I, I was reading from a yeah. uh, David Sirota piece that's the cover story of Newsweek this week. And he ends on that Roosevelt seemed to appreciate that business as usual would not stave off fascism and rescue the country. Much, much more was required. And so, quote, there must have been an end to a There must be an end to a conduct in banking and in business which too often has given to a sacred trust the likeness of callous and selfish wrongdoing, he said in his first inaugural address. Restoration calls, however, for not changes in ethics alone. This nation asks for action and action now. And it's because they were in a moment of of peril just the same way we're in a moment of peril and this is not the time for congeniality this is the time to uh to you know bare knuckle it and uh we got just like yeah a minute left uh before i have to roll the next uh piece do you have any other uh things you want to add yeah i think i think
1: I, I think David Tirotta is and he's obviously talking to Bernie, so uh, which we know he's very close with Bernie, uh, is on to something here and is probably guiding Bernie on this reconciliation thing. I have to say, uh, I was skeptical that Biden would, would, would be as aggressive as we want him to be. I was very pleased and happy with uh, his actions the first three days in office. Executive orders, which I'm not in love with, I, I, I think that there's certain things are legislative prerogatives and congressional prerogatives, but Biden has determined the Congress isn't going to do anything. They're obstructing, so i got to do things by executive order. And That's the kind of leadership that, quite frankly, sacrilege here for a lot of Democrats. But the guys who served under eight years ago, uh, Obama, 12 years ago, didn't do. Obama was trying to be too nice those first couple of months in office. I'm really surprised Biden Biden's come out of the box, boxed it. Um, maybe he's talking to Bernie and David Serrata also realizes they, they, he needs to take action quickly. And and he's doing that so far.
0: And that's a good place to leave it. Thank you so much, Kardick, for joining us every time. I, I, I feel like, you know, we, we really cover some important territory and I so appreciate it. Thank you. All righty. Okay, we're gonna be right back with Rick Spizak. And uh, Radical Nursing on the front lines of the COVID crisis in Tampa.
2: Uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to welcome Desiree, uh, a longtime activist, uh public health activist, someone who's been involved in work against racism, against hunger, against homelessness, who's gone to great lengths to try to make this a better world, to try to do what she can to end hunger, to to make, let's say, to make good progress in that arena. And now we find her on the front lines, working in the COVID wards, trying to help people uh, survive through this and maybe learn better. Um, The first thing I want to ask you, Des, is when you see yourself now here in a hospital environment, um, obviously there's always uh, limited resources. Do you feel from your perspective that uh, resources are being allocated correctly? And of course, adequacy is always a question. How are you seeing things here when you're right there in the wards?
3: Well, um, one, thanks for having me. Um, So I work in long-term care. I'm not in a hospital environment. So we work with, um, like, subacute COVID patients and elderly populations. So I think at first, like, I think like most places, it wasn't um, really anticipated. And um, certainly at, like, the rate that things exploded, particularly in my home state of Florida, where the governor is... You know uh woefully um and woefully um unprepared um for such a thing and opened up restaurants and 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 beaches and everything just just months into the crisis when things were really critical to try to keep cases down so in that sense i think that medical facilities at least in my um, experience were um woefully unprepared um and you know i know that you know i like many other people have heard the horror stories of people you know having to reuse um personal protective equipment for weeks you know or you know makeshift items like raincoats and ponchos and things like that so you know i think we've all been trying to juggle you know, our personal safety and giving care to the people in our community um in these facilities trying to um you know make sure that people get through this and that we get through it, as well as our
2: families and, and our communities. You know, I think one thing that worries a lot of us who who aren't close to the problem, who have the luxury of being at something of a distance, at least theoretically, is, you know, we wonder uh, that, you know, most medical people are not overpaid. They're, they're working people, trying to make ends meet, and, and what – the demands that are being made to them right now, I think is, is frightening. Uh, we're asking an awful lot of people from what you see are, are, are people finding the reserve of energy, of strength, uh, of, you know, facing this kind of pressure day after day. Are, are you seeing people live with this, work with this, or, are you know, is it really a humbling and, and ultimately terrifying situation?
3: I mean, I think just overall, the whole situation has been like incredibly surreal um, and scary. I think, you know, um, while I feel very fortunate um, in a couple of different ways to be able to um, continue to work during a time where so many people have lost their jobs and lost their homes right. because of the virus and because of insufficient, like tragically insufficient, willfully insufficient resources for people. Um, who needed them during this catastrophe um, so I feel very fortunate that I have been able to work and I also feel very fortunate that I've been able to assist like um, you know with this like unprecedented crisis that that has hit all of these different communities across the, the country and the world you know so like I feel fortunate to be able to be a part of it um, I had just graduated school when I got my first nursing job just a few weeks later and cases were rising. So it's kind of been, um, you know, I mean, I don't know, just like a really surreal kind of experience, you know, and I, I really have had, um, I've taken the time to listen to a ton of the, um, you know, the intimate, like, um, um, sharing that people that medical workers have done, particularly in like ICUs and um, different COVID units and in acute crises, and um, you know, in the, in the things that they've shared, and the, the overwhelming um, feeling of grief and sadness and helplessness, and then on top of it, the complete fear and frustration that people have expressed, um, you know, in the medical field of watching people that are like these anti-masker, um, you know, people and. Um, people that are like virus safety and shaming and things like that. So it's just it's been on so many different levels. It's been just really intense and surreal and frustrating and um, you know heartbreaking. And then it's just at the same time, it just feels like nothing's going to get back to the kind of normal you know whatever that was that we had before <laughs> the whole thing
2: hit. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know we know that typically uh, people with low incomes or spotty incomes attend to, to be the first victims of any uh, disease vector that's, that's present. Um, are you hearing, from, I know you still have contacts in the, you know, the poverty community, the, the anti-poverty, uh, anti-homelessness community. Uh, are you seeing, or, or from what you're hearing, uh, is this truly the, uh, a disease that's having a, a greatest effect on uh, the poor and the homeless?
3: Well, yeah, it's just like anything else that happens, any kind of disaster, any um, climate catastrophe, just the everyday climate catastrophe of poor air and water quality in impoverished neighborhoods. Um, it's its like in my particular, in Tampa where I live, it's, um, you know, in the beginning of the, this crisis, you know, we had um, watched our city uh, step aside and let the walls close in on uh people experiencing uh, homelessness um while their resources were cut they had nowhere to use public bathrooms because places had you know rightfully shut down there was no contingency set up for them there was no public bathrooms there was not even a single hand washing station that was set up It took around a month for the city to get a um like a tent city set up for people where they had to wear uh numbered armbands and um you know if people were you know using substances they couldn't stay there because you couldn't have substances there so people you know under you know either having to choose whether to get incredibly sick by going through withdrawals or you know from from different substances or you know be in a space where they could have access to sanitation and hygiene was you know it was particularly frustrating in our community because the city did apart from that small tent city that woefully woefully you know like and and you know Purposely underestimated the issues of poverty and homelessness in our community you know provided this very small resource for a few people and it was all over the tv stations all over the radio and our efforts were allowed it as being you know so so compassionate and so kind but you know it's it was posturing by the city people are still out in the same position that they were this entire time there's still no hand washing stations for people who don't have access to hygiene and sanitation there still aren't any kind of resources for people to get like you know, masks or different things that they need to stay safe in a population that doesn't have access to, you know, the kind of medical care that other folks have access to. So that's been really frustrating. And I'm, I can only speak really for my community and the things that I've seen here, but that's something that we were trying to address for a long time, not just, you know, like protesting or, you know, calling but trying to call the city's emergency manager, trying to find out what plans and what contingencies the city has set up for something like this. So now we're in a setting where the same exact problem is continuing only it's going to be greatly exacerbated because they're about to have a Super Bowl in Tampa which is going to bring tourists and people you know and it's it's going to create like a mass spreader event in our community and then when all the tourism leaves and all the football fans go home and things we're stuck with a community with you know you know, what I fear is going to be really rising numbers and really strong impact from, you know, from an event that really doesn't need to happen right now. You know,
2: I, uh, I have to admit, unfortunately I'm so far away from that. I had no idea they would still even have something as stupid as a Super Bowl game, but there you go. Um, let me, you're a person that has thought long and hard about different societal ills. Uh, I want to ask you, do you, do you have some reason to hope that, you know, granted we've had a change of administration, granted we've gone from someone who has at least some compassion uh, from this this maddening denier mentality, uh, but I, I, I honestly am completely puzzled as to how a man with any compassion as we, we can hope that Mr. Biden is, why does he not understand the necessity for access to healthcare for everyone, do do you see us moving in a sensible direction, at least stimulated by this?
3: I see that the status quo has been, um, you know, regained from someone who was, you know, an autocrat and, um, you know, like trying to build like a broad-based fascist movement. Um, so I feel like the status quo has been um, retained and grappled control of by um you know the, the new administration coming in but status quo has been a, it continues to be a catastrophe for for so many people like um you know while there's so much talk and I am very grateful that Trump is out like, yes. you know yes. I'm very grateful but now we can watch this sickening disgusting repugnant playing out of um him inciting this insurrection um that happened this mob that went and you know um rampaging through the building and you know whatever um you know we get to see that being like you know already there's headlines of oh that's going to be you know it would be basically petty for them to pursue charges against this because you know the senate's not going to pass it and you know, and and so like seeing things melting back into like you know how cooperative these elements are with one another, you know, so it seems like nothing's going to happen um to Trump for the things that he incited. Um, and you know and and you know, before he walked out the door, Bannon is set free. Um, and if Trump supporters don't see that that he pardoned someone who swindled them out of money. Um, for the border wall that he said he was so passionate about building um then yet used it for his own personal enrichment, you know the money. Um, but it, it, like I, I think if people aren't seeing that, we're going back to a status quo that allows for all of the um, it, systemic racism and everyday um, violence of poverty and hunger and lack of health care and lack of you know um, living wages and things you know it's it's like we're we're back to the disaster we know the disaster we're more you know um resilient or, or 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 you know knowledgeable or intimate with or whatever you know so um you know that scares me and it particularly it's frustrating to me that you know all this talk about um you know you know we're we're reversing all of the things that trump did um per the administration for the biden administration we're reversing all of these horrific horrible violent um, things that that he did, yet the um, the theft of Jerusalem, um, named as the capital of Israel, and uh, um, embassy building being built there, like nothing's being done. We're just going to keep it like that, which just you know reinforces that um, this country's um, allegiances and loyalties don't lie in the places where people um, are being oppressed and where they're being. Um, where they're being harmed and they're being, um, you know, denied of basic human rights. Um, it, it, lies in another wealthy nation state where, um, you know, they can, they can use it for their own geopolitical gain. So it's just frustrating to see that, um, you know, that that kind of status quo is continuing.
2: Um, just two more questions then I'll let you go. Cause I know you have a busy afternoon. Uh, question number one. I think people have come to realize, more than ever, that it's not just food and water and shelter that we need. We need each other. We need social contact. We need that that human bond, and, and I, it's my profoundest hope that one of the takeaways, whenever this gets dealt with, whether it's a year or two that we, we reckon with that and try to make ourselves have a more humane community. The other question, I, and that's not really a question, just a statement, I guess. The question I have for you is, if you had the ear of a serious policy person, what would you say you have learned and what should they do to change how we're dealing with the rest of this COVID infection? Well,
3: and I'm sorry for the music, there's cars driving by, there are really okay. loud. Um, But, yeah, I think that, you know, if I, you know, had the ear of someone with their, you know, hand on the wheel of empire, it would, you know, be masks need to be mandated. They need to be provided to people. There needs to be um, education. And I'm sorry, but the response, you know, people are applauding the fact that Twitter and Facebook and these social media platforms um, have addressed misinformation. Well, this is far too late. You know to to address the kind of misinformation that's become rampant everywhere you know um and our public health you know experts from the cdc that we're supposed to trust and have faith in literally stood there while he told people to drink bleach and didn't say a word you know um i would say that first of all you need to reconcile and you know reckon with your um lack of credibility um and deal with the issue of misinformation and talk about the fact that it should have been addressed in the beginning because now you have people even people that I work with even nurses that I work with that are saying that they would never get the vaccination and they you know they're just like different things that you hear like a an amalgamation of all these different conspiracy theories about microchips and the vaccination and different things you know I think there needs to be um a public reckoning and transparency you know but but in systems of hierarchical governance, you know, there's no, you know, there's always the the status quo um, holding on to this this level of power and the information that trickles down to people. And I think that right now the best thing to do would be to mandate masks, to talk consistently and constantly about what's happening, what's going on, different strains, how they can affect you. Um, address misinformation the roots of it why it's happening why it's proliferating and kind of you know try to attain the kind of transparency that would have saved possibly hundreds of thousands of lives if it was you know established on day one you know um, that's the only thing I can think you know to say or to do at this point and then to provide you know appropriate um, and ample PPE for um, people that are doing from home care to long-term care to hospital care to all these other you know you know jobs that are uh, public facing and you know create risk for the workers and to to have cleaning stations and sanitation for people that are out on the streets that are vulnerable to to this virus
2: you know in a in a very real revolutionary sense one of the things that I think I hope comes from this is when we think about what is typically the lowest caste workers in this uh, all equality nation, the, the janitors, the cleaning crew. If those people don't have access to to PPEs and to health self care, it's all it it all falls down right there.
3: Right, exactly. I mean every every person needs, you know. The proper materials in order to keep themselves safe and in order to keep their families safe. And you know, with having like you know, just before the election, Trump came to our community. And there's a, a lot of workers that are um, experiencing homelessness that are working for big events like a pension centers or the stadiums and events that happen. So you put these people in a dangerous position. So Trump could come to our community and you know have a speech and have all you know it was just so frustrating that the pointlessness of all of this, you know, and to just continue to have events like a Super Bowl and things like this. I mean, I know it's going to be somewhat like truncated in the amount of like people that it allows or something, you know, I'm not plugged into, you know, all sure. what they're doing, but sure. it just it doesn't need to happen, you know, and we're talking about people dying and then, you know, when they leave and all the lights and the, the fans and the, you know, jerseys and things leave our community. What are we left with? You know, and when you combine those things with lack of proper PPE, lack of you know ample and adequate PPE and um, misinformation and you know, not mandating things like masks and social distancing and restaurants and things, it's just you know it's the perfect storm, which is going to continue to claim lives. So more people who are alive right now will not be alive, you know, tomorrow, next week, the week after, because of these kind of, irresponsible actions that are happening.
2: Desiree, thank you so very much. I very much appreciate your insights. Have a good day. Be safe, my friend. We need you. You too. We need you with us. You
3: too. Thank you. I appreciate you. Thanks for having me
2: on. Okay. You take care, my friend. Be safe. You too. Bye-bye.
0: And we're here with Janine Maloff with this week's Justice Report. And I hear this week you're working on uh, things having to do with Marco Rubio.
4: Yeah, it it kind of traces back to Florida. And this is basically a piece about why Trump and his accomplices must be criminally prosecuted. And no, Senator Rubio, this, this impeachment trial is most certainly not stupid. So we're, you know, we're five days into the Biden administration and already the GOP of Trump has backpedaled on any responsible action regarding Trump's overall record, but especially on his key role inciting the insurrection that was witnessed globally on January 6, 2021. Even on Fox news, Chris Wallace attempted to obtain a semblance of a responsible statement on the insurrection and the pending second impeachment as Chris Wallace questions Florida's own Senator Marco Rubio and Rubio demonstrated his political cowardice as he lazily exclaimed that Trump impeachment, second impeachment is stupid. And so I saw this also in Ross story and I'm just going to quote, and he said this today, he said that, um, Mark Senator Rubio says he's he's going to try to end the second impeachment trial because it is stupid. And he was, this was during an interview with Fox news host, Chris Wallace, to quote Rubio, first of all, quote, first of all, I think the trial is stupid. We already have a flaming fire in this country and it's like taking a bunch of gasoline and pouring it on top of the fire, end quote. And then Rubio went on to say that pardoning Trump would be somehow good for the country. Now, Chris Wallace pointed out that even Mitch McConnell condemned Trump for his part in the attack on the US Capitol. And then Chris Wallace asked Rubio, is that quote, is Senator McConnell wrong, sir? And Senator Rubio said the following quote, I think the president bears responsibility for some of what happened. It was most certainly a foreseeable consequence of everything that was going on. And I think that's widely understood and maybe even better understood with the perspective of time. I think that's separate from the notion of let's revisit this all and stir it up again. All I'm arguing is we have some really important things to work on. You want to to kind of really bring the country together and remember, once again, how we can get things done. It isn't by uniformity on all the issues. It's about working through a process, and he goes on and on and on. But, you know, once again, apparently Senator Rubio feels that impeachment, a second impeachment is far worse than the deadly insurrection of January 6th. And you know, once again, the the incredible privilege of that statement is beyond belief. So we're going to go a little further now, and we're going to look at some documents. ABC News, a piece that was written on January eighth by Mark Levine and Alexander Malin, and this basically discur- the, the headline is "Don't expect charges against Trump or allies for inciting capital siege," says say DOJ officials. And of course, this is part of Trump's DOJ, you know, just before the inauguration and they're claiming that criminally prosecuting Trump um, is basically a moonshot. And my question is, okay, if Trump hadn't been president, we wouldn't be listening to excuses revolving around this moonshot chance. But we're going to look at this apologist stance, not just for Trump's crimes throughout his four years and even before, but in particular for the crime of insurrection and inciting insurrection that we saw throughout his uh, his administration and it culminated on the attack on the Capitol on the 6th. And so, you know, once again, Democrat lawmakers have said that Trump and others should potentially face criminal charges for encouraging that that fatal riot. Remember people died on the 6th, including uh, a couple of police officers. Um, but Ken Cole, who was a senior prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington, um, quote, said, we don't expect any charges of that nature, end quote. And so, you know, once again, we have this disconnect with the national GOP. and But it's not just the GOP. We have this disconnect between people of power escaping uh, culpability for their actions and the rule of law that the rest of us have to face. So Representative Rosa DeLauro, who's a Democrat of Connecticut, said that, quote, while the mob who attacked the People's House um, must be charged, those who instigated them, okay, have to be be accountable as well. And Democratic Representative Rosa DeLauro is correct. All right. Representative John Beyer is quoted in this ABC article as well. Democrat Virginia also said, quote, those who brought about this awful crime must be prosecuted and brought to justice. End quote. But what we're looking at now is ABC news kind of pushing this false equivalence argument against the show that the Democrats were for prosecution, but the Republicans are saying, well, but the law says that we really know grounds, which isn't true, actually. So. You know, again, colleagues in the federal DOJ still, again, this was written on the 8th before Biden's inauguration, are basically saying, oh, this isn't going anywhere. And they suggested that federal investigators should be looking at other things. And my question is, is this a genesis of a cover-up? Justice Department spokesman Mark Raymondi, again, this is on the 8th, stated to ABC news that quote, the investigation is quote, extremely complex and ongoing and we will continue to follow the facts and the law end quote. Now I would ask Mr. Raimondi, would he be saying the same if collaborators weren't powerful political bosses such as Donald Trump and others? And then another justice department official again, before Biden's inauguration um, called this attempt to prosecute Trump for incitement and his, his colleagues quote, a moonshot. And he suggested that, quote, it's a moonshot to, quote, if there's any hook for criminal liability for Trump. And um, this just unnamed Justice Department official also said, quote, encouragement can cause criminal liability, but it's got to be more than a politician making reckless comments to their base. Uh, end quote. And he went on to say because politicians, quote, blustery, incendiary comments, end quote, are still protected first amendment speech, but this official also spoke in the condition of anonymity. And my question is, well, yeah, but what about negligent homicide? All right. If you incite a crowd and then people die because you've incited them to violence, even though maybe you didn't directly tell them this, you know, there's some other things that could also be Trump could be held responsible for. Um, so Then we've got basically Jordan Strauss who served in DOJ in the justice Department's national security division under Obama told, he told ABC news quote, it would be hard to bring a criminal prosecution end quote. Um, and I'm saying, no, it's not. Uh, but Strauss also went on to say quote, according to federal law, people can face rebellion or insurrection charges for offering aid and comfort to rioters. So a broad reading of the sedition and insurrection laws, could theoretically allow for prosecution of senior officials, but the legal issues will be thorny. End quote. Now, again, this is Jordan Strauss. He served, you know, in in Justice Department during the Obama administration. He is now an executive at a the global intelligence firm Kroll with his parent company Duff and Phelps. McRoe it was responsible, I believe, for a lot of. Uh, illegitimate monitoring of Occupy Wall Street and Black Lives Matter. Carl has a reputation as well. So basically, these attorneys are admitting that they're too lazy, or either or too indifferent to the idea of justice, rule of law, and, and and saving any semblance of democracy to basically work to build a case. So you know, once again, now there was a former Justice Department prosecutor in the same ABC. Uh, article that specializes in national security case and criminal conspiracies. Again, unnamed told ABC news quote that at least in theory, anyone who incited could be charged as an aider and an abetter end quote under seditious conspiracy laws. But those charges would be a stretch because what Trump did and didn't say on national television. And basically, you know, this person says, is there any evidence in the videos of an, of an intent to incite violent action, or is it just the intent to encourage a lawful pro- protest? This former federal prosecutor said, quote, he goes on say, I think the conduct was deplorable. Sometimes that's the same as criminal, but not always, and probably not here. Um, but basically Trump did the mafioso bo- boss thing, you know, where he hints at what he wants done without directly stating the order, but it's understood. And again, I would argue that negligent homicide charges would stick especially if there was any other communications that they can prove between Trump and some of the organizers. But then, you know, the former prosecutor goes on to say, charging a political figure with what can be argued to so quote is political speech is in my view, sending us further down the road to a banana republic End quote my response is then don't prosecute for the political speech, the hints of desired action Charge then for criminal na- the criminal negligence, that Trump is an administration committed when they, as we spoke earlier on this last week on the show, when they sabotage national security regarding white supremacy by cutting DHS department of Homeland security handling of those matters and by fi- uh, firing intelligence pros who pursued investigations of violent white supremacists and neo-Nazis is a cutting and, and that, that censoring of intelligence pros regarding the threat, the very real threat of white supremacy and Nazism, that's what, actually per, that's what actually led to the insufficient police preparation, and that can be proven. So I don't know what law these federal prosecutors are talking about. They're only telling you the parts that they want to, because once again, they don't want to touch this. They are trying to, in my opinion, these prosecutors are trying to hedge their bet because depending on who may stay in office and they don't want to charge the rich and powerful. So let's see if Marco Rubio is correct or just cowardly. So Matt Fort wrote in November, 2020, um, basically in the new Republic, the quote, the case for prosecuting Trump and his cronies. Okay? And the subtitle was How Biden Treats His Predecessor Could Determine the Fate of American Democracy. Now, there's a lot of stuff in this article that I looked up in several of these pieces um, dealing with multiple crimes that Trump and his administration cronies are alleged to have committed, both before he entered office and during. But today, we're going to really focus on this inciting people to violence, this insurrection. And it may very, be, very well be that we actually can criminally prosecute Trump on something like tax evasion, as opposed to some of these others, because he knew how to split hairs. Okay. But let's go to this. All right. And this is really important because, you know, we had the previous Obama administration claim they didn't want to go after the administration of George W. Bush for allegations of torture and, and, and such things. Because, quote, they wanted to go, they wanted to look forward, not backward. Unfortunately, that is a very dangerous position. Had the Obama administration, in my opinion, pursued the crimes of the George W. Bush administration, especially regarding the kidnapping of suspects, the actual reversal of any civil rights reversal, habeas corpus, um, the, the uh, reversal of the Eighth Amendment against torture, had the Obama administration pursued that? kind of almost like a Nuremberg trial situation. Trump might not have risen like he did and definitely wouldn't have seen the same level of violence. This is just too much like what the cowards of Vichy did during Hitler's rise. We cannot ignore this criminality. We cannot ignore this racism. We cannot keep looking at this this excuse that what we've witnessed on the sixth is not who we are. Because I would argue, yeah, it is, and has been for a long time. So, you know, Matt Ford argued that basically, you know, he started with the idea up until five years ago, the idea of criminalizing a political opponent was basically taboo in the U.S. And that was, he documented that on from the New York Times. Presidential candidates did not accuse the rivals of criminal behavior. They didn't threaten to, they didn't, threatened to jail their opposition, as again this was documented by CNN, or to pursue what are really political prosecutions by using the Department of Justice as a weapon against political opponents. All right, which we definitely saw during the Trump administration, especially under the auspices of Bill Barr. There's no question there. So You know, once again, we're looking at a defendant like Donald Trump, who is not an ordinary defendant. We understand that he may possess some national security information that he may try to blackmail the government or keep himself out of jail. But the fact is this, Trump helped unleash what can only be called, according to Matt Ford, quote, the culture of lawlessness, unquote, and it is. Now federal prosecutors, according to Ford's piece, did identify two possible offenses that Trump committed in 2018. They, you know, they're talking about how he violated campaign finance law, by paying hush money to Stormy Daniels. Um, and then also the more important charge, special counsel, Robert Mueller as outlined by CBS news, outlined 10 incidents that were basically Trump obstructed justice during the Russian investigation. And you know, Mueller didn't recommend charges, but not because there wasn't evidence to convict Trump. Mueller declined to to recommend charges because he was looking at the constitutionality of indicting a sitting president, which goes back to basically that office of legal counsel memo that we talked about before that basically says a sitting president is immune from criminal prosecution that OLC memo that definitely has got to go. All right. But that's what we're looking at here. And we also have basically some crimes that Trump may have committed regarding his taxes. But once again, you know, we have to look at what this most violent issue. Now I'll go back. I will say one thing in 2018, you know, Trump, Claimed that he could try and pardon himself if he wanted to, and that is documented by CNN. But I, I would argue he can't. But even if he did, presidential pardons—Trump keeps forgetting—has two have two major limits. A presidential pardon cannot be used to avoid impeachment. That's one. And a presidential pardon only applies to federal crimes, which means that when the New York District Attorney goes after him, yes, now that he's out of office, he is most definitely vulnerable. But, and I hope, and I hope that those, uh, those uh, criminal charges in New York stick because Trump definitely needs to go to jail, but I'm more concerned right now about the fact that he incited insurrection and the exam- the bad example it sets. All right. And we have to do something about it. You know, once again, the Obama approach quote, we need to look forward as opposed to looking backwards is wrong. It's wrong headed. It's, it's a bad example, and it allowed Trump to take even more um, you know, m- more privileges than he should have. The New Yorker columnist, columnist John Cassidy um, wrote a few weeks ago, again, before the Biden uh, inauguration, quote, Trump can't be allowed to escape justice again. Okay. And again, it's a similar type situation. I agree with him. He cannot be. Um, Evidence of Trump's criminality, all right? This is something that is very, very important. You know, my own home uh, Senator Roy Blunt basically took the opinion that, well, he touched the oven, let it go. I disagree. So basically what we had, and and that's what he said, Roy Blunt said, quote, my view is what the president should do is finish the last days of his presidency. Um, the president touched the hot stove on Wednesday and is unlikely to touch it again before, you know, during his last week, right? blind couldn't be more wrong. Um, basically the nuclear option that w- which is important on so many levels, okay, to keep Trump from running again for office from Norm Eisen. Norm Eisen's a Washington attorney. He served as special counsel to the house judiciary committee during the 2020 impeachment. Um, And he basically said, one, invoke section three of the 14th amendment. This is one way you can go after Trump for insurrection says that anybody that's called for an insurrection against the federal government can't run for office. And what Trump did seems to fit right in there. Also section five of the amendment gives Congress the power to enforce it. And Eisen was quoted as saying that's certainly something that should be in the mix, but we, but we should leave with impeachment End quote, Um, And why do we need to punish Trump to make sure he can't run again, all right? You know, one of the things Cassidy said is that in other democracies, any leader that basically incited uh, insurrection like Trump did basically, quote, might well be cooling his heels in prison by now, end quote, and that's very true. Now, we've got um, Jonathan Hayes, that's Professor of Law at Seton Hall University, um, Brooke, how am I doing in time? Am I okay? I know you can edit this out.
0: You're doing fine.
4: Okay. i we've got go out here. Um, so, Hafitz is the professor of law at Seton Hall University. He he talked about the case for prosecuting Trump, and this is crimes predating his appointment and the consequences. Um, and, again, it's saying prosecuting someone like the former head of state is a big deal. It's pretty much unprecedented. But he also argues that the threat that Trump poses to and has posed to democratic institutions, argues that yes, he should be uh, indicted as long as we have evidence. Unfortunately, the OLC memo on the unitary executive being immune from prosecution keeps pushing in. So we have that problem as well. Uh, He also talked about how, how I mentioned as well, how Obama hamstrung equal justice and set the stage for Trump's egregious abuses. You know, when Obama, again, tr- refused to pursue investigations into torture and other crimes committed by George W. Bush and his administration, even though there was quite a bit of evidence showing these illegal practices, illegal under U.S. law, no matter what they say, and also violating um, international law and violating the, um, oh lord the practices of war basically. So this basically made Trump think that I'm sure that he could get away with more of it. Um, a criminal prosecution of a president who, is, who has committed crimes, sets a good example. It basically reestablishes rule of law that no one is above the law. Unfortunately then that OLC memo is in the way. Um, And Hafiz argues, quote, President Trump did not merely shatter unwritten norms. He also broke laws, end quote. But Trump, he also argues Trump believed he was never going to have to face charges or justice. Um, And, you know, once again, there's a lot of truth to that. We talk about the field of, he talks about the field of transitional justice. And it speaks to the idea that nations who have emerged from war or social conflict have to look at whether or not they're going to prosecute high-ranking officials. And to me, the most obvious example is Germany with the Nuremberg trials. We have to do something that is similar. We just do. Otherwise, white supremacists and Nazis, which are basically the same, will um, see this level of appeasement that government is pushing as encouragement, and they will come roaring back even stronger than before. Um, but now we have the lawfare blog again. This piece was written by Bruce Bryce Klein, Alan, Z. Rosenstein and Jacob Schultz. It was written January 7th, the day after the January 6th insurrection. And they, they set the legal case for federal criminal prosecution of the insurrectionists, including Trump. Okay. And this is from the lawfare blog and Basically, they prepare the case. So I'm going to read straight from these facts, first of all, that build a case for criminal prosecution. One, to quote, this is a direct quote. One, hundreds of individuals, some armed, forcibly intruded into the Capitol in order to stop the certification of electoral ballot votes and managed to achieve this goal at least temporarily. The county of electoral votes in both chambers, in fact, stopped from around 2.15 p.m., until about 8 p.m. when law enforcement retook control of the facility. Two, the intrusion resulted in violence threatened or committed against Capitol security, against members of Congress and the Senate, and against congressional staff. One of the rioters was shot and subsequently died. Capitol Police described this incident, quote, as protesters were forcing their way toward the House chamber. A sworn USCP employee discharged their service weapon and, end quote, and shot the woman. Three other people died as a result of separate medical emergencies. And three, the rioters stole and vandalized government property as documented by The Hill and Yahoo News. So they go on to say the federal criminal law is what they call expansive on the subjects they just talked about in this conduct. Uh, and this was documented by a book, how, how um, federal law but the federal criminal law illustrates, excuse me. And they talk about how there's uh, an entire collection of narrowly applicable statutes, additional details. Um, There are reports of rioters that basically look through Pelosi's emails. And if that's true, that is a violation of, quote, the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act's prohibition against knowingly accessing a computer without authorization, end quote. Which, again, we know that there is you know, a, a person in Florida that was charged with this, but she was actually trying to let people know that COVID was far worse than it was. And she didn't break the law, but notice how white supremacists are off the hook. Um, and then there's probably going to be, he argues, they argue more examples of this. So there's criminal laws against trespassing on federal facilities as well as destroying and stealing federal property. Federal law, according to Cornell CornellLawSchool.edu, prohibits, quote, depred- depredation against any property of the United States, end quote, as well as, um, quote, robbing or attempting to rob, quote, another of any kind of description of personal property belonging to the United States. It also prohibits, quote, possessing a firearm in a federal facility with intent that a firearm or other dangerous weapon be used in the commission of a crime. Another federal statute makes the crime to knowingly enter any restricted building or grounds without lawful authority to do so, uh, including, quote, with intent to impede or disrupt the orderly conduct of government, business, or official functions. Um, We can go on with this, but the point is they can prosecute the insurrectionists and if these prosecutors are so frightened that they don't have enough evidence to connect Trump and to actually criminally indict and prosecute Trump, do what they do in any other criminal case. See if they can get some of the insurrectionists to basically cop the deal and out Trump as giving one the orders. There are several organizers, of these of the insurrection that are already openly saying we were taking our orders from Trump. I, I would say that that level of multiple witness prosecution is enough to indict Mr. Trump. I don't see why 90 he seconds. Then also they talk about how t- Title 18, chapter one fifteen, criminalizes, quote, treason, sedition and subversive activity. Um, and federal law prohibits, quote, rebellion or insurrection against the authority of the United States or the laws thereof. Not used by prosecutors much, but they could. The most relevant prohibition is Section 2384. It outlaws seditious conspiracy. Um, And that's defined as one quote, two or more persons conspire to overthrow, put down, or destroy by force of government of the United States, or to oppose and force the authority thereof, or by force prevent, hinder, and delay the execution of the law of the United States, or by force the seize take or possess any property of the United States contrary to the authority thereof. End quote. Here's the thing. The takeaway from this legal description, even though the same crime was used against Black Lives Matter protesters who did not use force and were not violent, the takeaway from this legal description that will also break this, this uh, false equivalence between the political left and the alt-right is that this legal description really talks about the use of violence or the use of force. This is the insurrectionist on the sixth used force. Black Lives Matter and, some, and similar groups did not use force. That's it. And so they really don't have a whole lot to go on by now. You know, the fact is that we no, we, we have to do something that's similar to Nuremberg. But in conclusion, we can no longer allow such. We can no longer look at an apologist response, such as we need to look forward, not backward, or we want to bring the country together. This is not the insurrection that we saw. This is not a white supremacist and, and neo-Nazis is quote, not who we are. We can't allow that apologist response to dominate our national discussion on white supremacy and Nazism in the U S. If Trump and his collaborators evade criminal prosecution on the grounds of national some dubious national reconciliation, then I guarantee you they will come back another time and they will be far more dangerous than before. Like the Nuremberg trials of Nazi war criminals, we must hold Trump and his collaborators, each and every one of them legally and criminally accountable. The mantra coming from white liberals, AKA that's not who we are excuse sends the wrong message. First of all, the raw racism and neo-Nazism the world witnessed on January 6th and actually throughout the Trump administration is who we are. At least a large segment of the white American public. And I'm going to read something that my Congresswoman, Cory Bush, said in a Washington Post op-ed regarding this, this idea that the Nazism we saw is not who we are. And I'm taking straight from her op-ed, quote, many have said that what transpired on Wednesday was not America. They are wrong. This is the America that black people know. To declare that this is not America is to deny the reality that Republican members of the U.S. House and Senate incited this coup by treasonly, treasonously working to overturn the results of the presidential election. It's to deny the fact that one of my senators, Josh Hawley, went out of his way to salute the white supremacists before their attempted coup. It's to deny deny that he appropriated the sign of black power, the raised fist, into a white supremacist salute, a fist he has never raised as a march for black lives because he's never shown up to one. It is to to deny what my Republican colleagues called fraud actually refers to the valid votes of black, brown and indigenous voters across this country who in the midst of a pandemic that disproportionately killed us overcame voter suppression in all of its forms to deliver an election victory for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. This is America and it will continue to be America until white supremacy is dismantled. Justice starts at removing each and every representative who incited this insurrection end quote. And she went on to say, quote, we cannot denounce white supremacy and allow its endorsers to continue serving in our government, end quote. And I would agree with my Congresswoman, and somebody that I feel privileged to call friend. Shamefully, the hatred on display in DC on January 6, 2021, that white supremacy, that Nazism is precisely who we are as a nation and have been for some 200 plus years. We can no longer throw a deaf ear and a blind eye on this. The cancer of racism, called what is of Nazism, must be eradicated. And a part of that process means we must have something like the Nuremberg trials to hold everyone from Trump on down accountable. And that's my report.
0: And Ginny Molliff. So good. Uh listen to her Thursday nights, eight PM on the Environmental Justice Report. And uh hey man, that is uh that is it for me tonight. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks for tuning in.